I invite you to turn to the book of Philippians this morning. Uh, We'll find our sermon there in Philippians chapter 3. We'll begin in verse 1. If you don't have a a Bible, you can find that on page 981 in the Pew Bible in front of you. It's 981. I do encourage you to open up your scripture, even though it will be on the screen, be able to follow along as we work our way through these three verses. In fact, if you don't have a Bible of your own, uh, that pew Bible in front of you is our gift to you. We certainly love for you to have that and take that home and use that as uh, God speaks to you through his word. And so please feel free to uh, take that as our gift to you this morning. And so Philippians chapter 3 and verse 1, hear now the word of God. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Father, we thank you now for this time to consider your word. We ask that you, by your Spirit, would come and serve us and speak to us, that we would hear from you. We pray for us, Father, this morning, that that we, uh, perhaps considering these verses, that teach a lesson we're familiar with, that we would hear it with, with new ears and rejoice in it with a new heart, that our confidence before you is not found in our morality, our goodness, but is found in Christ alone. So help us to rejoice in this truth, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Horatio Alger was a 19th century American novelist. He was very prolific. He wrote 118 novels and 500 short stories, most of them about upward mobility. Some of the titles of his books include Struggling Upward, Cash Boy, The Hotel Boy, Errand Boy. You see, he had a recipe to his books. They all pretty much follow the same formula. Starts with an adolescent boy living in a rural background who sets off to earn his fortune in an urban setting. And there he, through his hard work and ingenuity, triumphs over difficult circumstances and various temptations as he advances in his career, only then to be betrayed by a close friend, but is always vindicated. The moral of his stories is this. Hard work brings success. Hard work brings success. It's very American, isn't it? That we, a, uh, a nation of entrepreneurs, we who tame the West, we who say your station in life doesn't matter, work hard and you can move up. We who think that this is a land of opportunity. This is, this is very much part of what makes America great and wonderful. That there is opportunities to advance as we better ourselves. As we accumulate skills and experience and education, as we build a resume in order to sell ourselves and gain acceptance into places that were once closed to us. In fact, we honored our graduates this morning and and those who are going off to college once found those college doors shut to them. And they had to make an argument as to why they should be let in. And they said, we're good enough, we have enough education, we're smart enough, we have enough skills and characters. And if you are good enough, if they are persuaded, then those doors will be open to you. You'll be accepted. We not only do this in college, we do this in career as well. 
That we too were going to make an argument as to why we should have a job which is once closed off to us and, and argue why we would be a, a good person to take that job. In fact, we even do this in our romance. Though I, I trust not through a formal application. Um, well, I don't, maybe today we do on the computer, but most of the time, at least how uh, many of us entered romance, we, we made somewhat of an argument to our prospective spouse, didn't we? That, uh, that I'm good enough, that I'm attractive enough perhaps, or, or um, will we'll provide a good future. And if we do a good job, we will be accepted. She, she will say yes. In fact, I very much remember my proposal as if it were yesterday. It uh, took place on a backpacking trip, should be no surprise to you perhaps. And there I, I bowed down on my knee and, and asked my uh, girlfriend, Allegra, if she would be my wife, give me the honor. And I remember uh, she looked down upon her hand. All she could say is, is it real? And in fact, she, she not only said it once, but so, is it real? Is it real? Is it real? She said. Now, she will tell you that she's referring to the whole proposal after four long years. Is this really happening to me? But I, I'm not sure I'm persuaded. But so after about 30 seconds of these exclamations, I said, well, why is it yes or no? And she finally said, yes, I will marry you. I was accepted into her life as her husband. We also do this with God. At least many do. They, they try to earn their acceptance with God. In fact, Jesus spoke of a couple characters who did this. Uh, Luke 18, he said, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. I think this is how most of the world understands how they will gain acceptance before God. They will present to God all that they have accomplished, all the righteousness in which they have accumulated through their own self-effort. They will build a spiritual resume and present it to God in order to hope to gain acceptance. In fact, this is how all world religions operate to one degree or another. That there is some spiritual authority that one day gives you a list that you are to follow the best you can to amass a set of achievement, and at the end you hope it is enough. So Islam has its five pillars. Or Buddhism, his, their spinning prayer wheel and their meditation. Or Hinduism, their act of service in order to escape the cycle of karma. Or modern Judaism, a system of righteousness in order to live a good life. Or even, as Clint just testified to us, paganism. As you cut off flesh, evidently, in order to appease some kind of God. Is this enough? It's really one religion. It just goes by different names. In fact, this, uh, unfortunately, is how many Americans live, that if you are good enough, God will accept you. I came across a recent survey that even teaches us that this is pervasive in the church. 7,000 Protestant teenagers, church-going Protestant youth, were asked a series of questions and then asked to, to determine whether they agree with them or not. Maybe this would be a good little test for you this morning. Do you agree with these statements I'm about to read? One statement said, the way to be accepted by God is to try sincerely to live a good life. 60% of those Protestant teenagers agreed. Or God is satisfied if a person lives the best life he can. 70% agreed. It's the idea that if, if you try your best, if you're sincere at least... You, you, God will let you into heaven. He will accept you. He will, he will give you an A for effort. 
Evidently, this is what was happening in Paul's day as well, as we see Paul warn the church of this teaching. You notice there in verse 1, at the second half, he says to them, to write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. And Paul's warning them. In fact, he, evidently he's warning them a second time. He perceives there's a danger that is coming upon this church who he loves so dearly. And he says, I want to keep you safe. You need to be safe. And he's not, not, not trying to keep them safe from the opponents which we consider some months ago back in chapter 1, those opponents who would imprison them and persecute them and, and, and uh, oppose them physically and in the marketplace and so forth. No, the, the, these opponents that he's referring to here in verse 1 are kind of like con men. They'll, they'll show up and they'll pose as friends. And they'll just add a couple wrinkles, a couple new teaching to what Paul gave them. And Paul says, if you trust them, it will lead to your ruin. In fact, it's something he obviously already spoke about. He says, I'm writing the same things to you. I I trust he's referring to what he spoke to them when he was there in person. And he says, I don't mind telling you again. It's no trouble to me, he says, in order to keep you safe from this false gospel. Really what Paul is doing here in these three verses and even farther on in, in chapter three, he's making a distinction between real believers and false believers. In fact, you could see that in verse three. For we are the real circumcision, he says. We are the real ones. There are others who look like they are, but they are false. We're the real ones. And so the question is, then what distinguishes real believers from false believers? How can you tell the difference? Well, Paul is going to argue it depends upon whom you trust. Who do you trust in? Who? Where is your confidence? Is it in you or is it in Christ? And as we consider the distinction that Paul makes here, I I would invite you, even as we go over this text, to think about where you place your confidence. What is it that you will say to God if he comes for you or if you go to him? What will you present to him? Well, Paul begins by saying that real believers rejoice in the Lord. Notice verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. I like this verse. I, I, in fact, I like the first word of this verse. You could tell Paul's a preacher, can't you? As he begins verse 1 by saying, Finally, my brothers, knowing full well he's only half done with his letter. Right? In fact, uh, many jokes have been made at preachers uh, at the expense of this one word, finally. I know that one child allegedly asked his father, What does the preacher mean when he says finally? In which his father muttered and replied, Absolutely nothing. Uh, right? <laughs> I think we say finally a lot because it draws you back into the sermon. Maybe you get lulled to sleep a little bit. And we say finally, and you all perk up and smile on your face. Um, thinking, well, maybe he's almost done. And so it kind of wakens you up. And so here Paul in the middle of his letter says finally. But some have said maybe it's better translated, well then, my brothers, and so my brothers. So and so what? Well, he tells us here, rejoice in the Lord. And so once again in the book of Philippians, as we seem to do every week in our study of it, we return back to the theme of joy. And every time Paul makes joy, I think it's very incumbent upon us to remember where he is writing from. This is a man in prison who may be executed at any day. In the meantime, there are Christians who are slandering him about this city. And he is the one who constantly goes back to joy. Rejoice, he says, in the Lord. In fact, it would be good for us to remember who he's writing to. People who are being persecuted, who are suffering, people who are desperately poor and fighting with disunity in their church. And he says to them, rejoice in the Lord. The reality 
reality is, as Paul tells us over and over and over again, that your joy is not found in your life circumstances. It's not found in how your day goes or how much money's in your bank account or what the doctor has to say. If you look for joy there, well, you will get it sometimes, but it will be fleeting. He says a joy is found in the Lord. I think one of the biggest problems in the Christian life is, comes from this misunderstanding of trial and suffering and difficulty. Many have somehow assumed this idea that if we are followers of Christ, life is therefore supposed to be easy. In fact, it is uh, Joel Olstein, the TV preacher, who has said recently that walking in the favor of God is getting a good parking place at the mall. Now, I would assume walking in God's favor means never having to go to the mall. (laughs) But nevertheless, let's just assume he's right. Assume he's right. Well, if so, then evidently Paul, Peter, Luke, James, even Jesus himself, to not have God's favor upon them. In fact, Paul not only didn't get a good parking spot, his car got stolen and he got thrown in prison there for four years. See, unless our joy is found in Christ, your life was, will, will be a wreck. There will be times of great depression, and if not depression, then there will be anger at God. Why is he treating me this way if you're looking at your circumstances? You see, the apostle is giving us a new way to look at life. He says, rejoice in the Lord. And please don't misunderstand him. He's not just kind of slapping a Band-Aid on your massive hurt and pain. He's not just saying, be, smile, and deal with it. This is no Band-Aid approach. I don't know if your children went through this phase that my kids went, is that a Band-Aid will heal anything. I don't know if they have a fever, you give them a band-aid. If they're hungry, here's a band-aid. And this solves all their problems. But Paul's not slapping a band-aid on his kids here. He's not ignoring the pain and difficulty in which they are facing. But what he is, is he redirecting their focus to the reality is that life sometimes will be easy and sometimes it will be hard, but nevertheless, Christ reigns for their good. And that it is in Christ that they will find their joy and their delight and their purpose and their satisfaction if they seek after Christ. Consider Christ, he says, to be valuable and precious that in your affliction or in your poverty you may have joy knowing that he reigns for your good in wisdom and goodness and mercy and one day will invite you into a restored creation where you shall live with him forever. I commend to you this morning, Christ rejoice in the Lord. That's where real believers find their joy. Christians, do you see this in your life? We have room to grow here, don't we? I do as well. I wonder what Monday will bring. I don't know. But I wonder whatever it brings, will it rob you of joy? And ought not to. Joy even in the midst of sorrow and hardship. And yes, in good times. Real believers rejoice in the Lord. Look, Paul goes on and says that real believers don't trust their own goodness. He gives a rather severe warning there in verse 2, doesn't he? 
Look out for the dogs, he says. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Three times he says, look out, watch out. He's almost placing it in bold. Beware, he says. Take note of these enemies. Evidently, Paul is not messing around. He is a good pastor, I think. He does not simply always preach sunshine and delight. He gives warnings. He points out doctrinal error. He says there are false teachers out there. They appear on your television. They often knock on your door and hand you pamphlets, and you ought to be aware of them. In fact, the problem with these teachers is they're not coming and saying that Christ that Christ should be rejected. They're not showing up and saying, you got it all wrong. Christ is not the Messiah. No, they would agree with that. They just want to add to it. They want to add to the work of Christ. New Testament scholars have come to call these individuals Judaizers. They they are Jewish Christians, if you will. I use that term loosely. The, The problem that came up in the church is that once the gospel, once the Messiah was being accepted by Gentiles, by non Jews, the Jewish people who had accepted the Messiah began to think, well, what do we do with all the Jewish laws? What do we do with all our our rituals? And so a group of Jewish Christians show up in the book of Acts. Chapter 15 is a fascinating read that I commend to you this afternoon. And, And there they show up and they're engaged in this missionary activity, these Judaizers. But their missionary activity is not trying to win the lost to Christ, but it's actually trying to find those who have given their life to Christ and convert them to Judaism. To, to convert them to, to become a Jew, that they would say, in order to be truly saved, you must become a Jew. You must be circumcised. You must keep the dietary regulations. You must keep the Sabbath laws and all the rest. In fact, Acts 15 uh, describes some of it. And they, some of the believers rose up and they said, it is necessary to circumcise them in order for, for them to keep the law of Moses. Now, Peter said to them, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. Unfortunately, they were not silent for long. Paul deals with them again and again. They seem to follow Paul wherever he goes, wherever he starts a church. They just come and they arrive soon after Paul, evidently, and begin to throw the church in confusion with their teaching. And it seems like they're not here in Philippi yet. That's why he's saying there, look out or watch out as if they might be coming. He wants, even though they're not there, he wants to take the opportunity to warn them. Even again, he's going to warn them a second time or perhaps a third or how many times, I don't know, but he's warning them. And he does so, and to be perfectly honest, not in a very nice way way. Right? Verse 2 is not a nice verse. He's not being civil here. I think he's trying to shock the Philippians. And perhaps if we read it correctly, he would shock us, we who live in this day of tolerance, where it's incredibly unloving to point out doctrinal error, to let them believe what they want. Well, Scripture explains that those who reject salvation by faith alone are like ravenous wolves, and they bring people to hell. And so Paul wants to emphasize the seriousness of this threat. He calls them dogs and evildoers and mutilators. Now, these are not just insults, though they clearly are, right? But he's not simply reaching for the worst words he can find to describe them. This is biting sarcasm. He's actually taking the insults that they accuse others of, and he's applying to them. As one uh, commentator said, he's impaling them on their own vocabulary. He's slapping them with their own slogans. He says, beware the dogs. Now, this is hard for us to understand because we love dogs, right? And dogs love us, right? We give them names. They have their own houses. Some of them wear sweaters, right? They go to the salon and get haircuts and pedicures. 
Right? But in Paul's day, there was no doggy daycare. Right? That they didn't, in fact, have any pets. They certainly had no use for dogs. I don't know if you've ever been to the third world, the developing world. You could kind of get uh, an appreciation for what Paul says. They're like scavengers. They're like, like wingless vultures running around in packs as they devour anything that they can find. They would eat garbage and filth and carrion. In fact, even if you have a dog, you know your dog will eat anything. He'll eat, eat your garbage. He'll eat, uh, eat some dead deer he finds. He'll eat your furniture. He'll, he'll eat anything. And so you can imagine the, gent- the Jews who have very strict dietary regulations, have, um, these laws, and they, then they have these dogs who, who eat anything, and they would actually begin to use that term as a derogatory reference to others. In fact, even today, to call someone a dog is not a compliment, but it was much worse in their day. In fact, it became the perfect metaphor to describe Gentiles who had no concern about what they eat. And so they, Jews would call them dogs. So well, you see what Paul is doing here. He's calling these Jewish Christians who are trying to maintain purity by keeping the dietary regulations that they are actually the dogs. The, the, the irony is that, that they are unclean as they are adding these dietary rules to the cross of Christ. In fact, in verse 18, he calls them the enemies of the cross of Christ. They are actually unclean. He goes on and says, beware of the evildoers there in verse 2. Again, a great irony here because their whole focus is on righteously keeping the law and trying to get other people to keep the law as well. And he says they are actually evildoers. Now, now Paul, um, Paul is not saying that keeping the law is evil. Please don't hear that. Obeying the law is, is not evil. Far from it. Um, but but there, it is evil when they do it because they're trying to add their righteous works to Christ's work in order to be saved as if the cross was insufficient and that their law-keeping needs to add to it. That's what makes it evil. In fact, it's not only a title that Paul gives them, it's a title that Jesus will give them one day or something very similar to it. As Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? You see what they're appealing to because they stand before God. Look at all that we've done, they say. Look at all the works that we've done, all the things that we have accomplished for you. Certainly this is good enough to earn acceptance into your heaven. In which Jesus responds, and I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You evil doers. They who think that they will maintain salvation on the basis of their works will be shocked one day when Christ calls them evil doers. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. We're very thankful that you're here and we're delighted to have you. Hope that you feel welcomed and appreciated. But I, I want you to understand what the Bible teaches. Because many people in this world teach that your goodness is going to earn you a standing before God if you're better than someone else, if you're, you're better than evil people, you're better than Hitler perhaps, or maybe even better than your neighbor, that that will be good enough for God. The Bible actually teaches quite the opposite, that no one can earn their standing before God by their good works. In fact, Paul says in Romans chapter 3 and verse 20, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Your record of law-keeping, therefore, your goodness will not earn you acceptance before God. Only Christ's work will. Only in getting a hold of Christ's work will you be accepted by the Lord. I'm not saying in any way, don't be nice and loving and, and patient and, and gracious. Obey God's word, obey God's law, but put no confidence in it for your salvation. It will lead to your ruin. It actually makes the work evil. Well, Paul goes on and describes them a third term. He says, beware of the mutilators. There in verse 2, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. This is a reference to circumcision. 
Circumcision uh, to the Jewish people was essential. If you were part of God's people, you were circumcised. It was the distinguishing mark of God's people from the time of Abraham all the way to the time of Christ. It meant you were in covenant relationship with God. And so in Genesis 17, God says to Abraham, this is my covenant, which you shall keep. He explains the covenant and then says, you shall be circumcised and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. In Genesis 15, he says, whoever does not accept this sign will be cut off from his people. I trust God intends the pun because the words are very similar. This cutting off is very similar, though it's a derivative of the circumcision. You see what circumcision was? It was a graphic metaphor of man's depravity. It was, it was this picture, a symbol that we need to be cleansed from sin, even in our deepest, most intimate parts of us. It was intended to humble them. And amazingly, they actually found pr- pride in it. They became proud. Or a very act that is humbling in its, in its, in its very existence. In fact, they, they become so proud of it, they actually begin to refer to themselves as the circumcision. And Paul would write about them in Titus 1. He says, there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party, especially those of the circumcision. These are Jewish men who believe that Jesus was the Messiah, but believe that in order to be saved, you had to be circumcised. Acts 15 verse 1 says, some men came down from Judea, were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom, custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's what they taught. And so Paul comes and says, you're not the circumcision, you're the, you're the mutilators. All you're doing is mutilating your flesh. In fact, the words are very similar. The word circumcision is the word peritome. And I don't know if you could hear in peri, that prefix, where we get the word perimeter. It means to cut around. And Paul doesn't call them the peritome, the cut around. He calls them the katatome, which means to cut to pieces. He says, you're, you're not, you're, all you're doing is, is cutting yourself to pieces. You're mutilating yourself. This is, a, of course, very strong language that Paul is putting here. But the point is that he's driving is you cannot add rituals, even religious rituals, even good rituals, even rituals in which God asks for you to do to the work of Christ in order to be saved. And so we may not be tempted to place that emphasis on circumcision, but I wonder if we are any less have any less tendency to place emphasis on other rituals. Many faith uh, traditions place it on baptism. And they baptize their very young, even in their infants, and say in doing so, they're at that point justified. That's what saves them, is the baptism. Maybe we're, we're not, we don't tend towards that extreme, but maybe we put that emphasis on walking an aisle or joining a church or attending a church, giving to a church. And we have all these other rituals that we might trust in. Please understand, Christian, that any of these rituals will not save you. It will not. It is to no credit before God. In fact, Paul would write in Galatians 5 and verse 3, I testify that every man who accepts circumcision, that he is obligated to keep the whole law, you are under the whole burden of Sinai. And so here Paul calls them dogs and evildoers and mutilators, extraordinarily harsh language. But he's not the first to do it. Paul, excuse me, John would would call people very similar, a brood of vipers. Jesus himself would call them hypocrites and blind guides and children of hell. You see the severity that the Scripture puts upon adding to Christ's work, that we cannot do so. We must not add to the work of Christ. Where are you trusting in? I wonder if some of you believe that you're okay with God because you're a member of Hamilton Baptist Church or perhaps some other church. That that's okay, that I'm a member and therefore I'm good. 
or that I was baptized in a certain age or I signed a card or prayed a prayer or walked an aisle. None of that will save you. None of adding these things will save you. Only faith in Christ. In fact, he will transform you to bring about that faith as we see in verse 3 and consider lastly that real believers have been transformed. He says there in verse 3, for we are the real circumcision. Right? So he returns to this language after calling them mutilators. And what Paul is explaining is that physical circumcision was simply a visible, was of course a visible mark that, that identified God's people. But, but they began to place their faith in the circumcision. So it didn't matter how much sin they committed. It didn't matter how many idols they worshiped. They would think, I'm circumcised. I'm therefore okay. When circumcision was always intended to be a picture of a hidden reality, the circumcision of the heart. In fact, uh, our brother Steve read for us this morning from Deuteronomy 30. When the Bible says, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and you may live. God will do this, he said. Well, they put so much emphasis in this act that, that he began to send Old Testament prophets to say, stop trusting in it. Jeremiah, for instance, said, circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskin of your heart. You see, like our baptism, circumcision was to reflect an inward work of God that you have at a heart circumcised. You have been transformed or to use the language that Jesus would say, you have been born again, that God has made you new. This is where our trust is. Not in what we have done, but what Christ has done through the cross and in our own heart. He has transformed us. And so Paul would write in Galatians 6, neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. You need to be new. Well, the question then is, okay, well, if this takes place on the inside of me, how do I know if I've actually received this? How do I know if I've been transformed? Well, evidently there's evidence of that. And Paul goes on to explain three different evidences of this transformed life. He says, first of all, in verse 3, for the, we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. That the Spirit who comes and works in our heart, He actually makes us worshipers. That our worship to God is prompted and it's motivated by God's Spirit. Our worship is not, therefore, forced. It is not um, by ritual. It, it is rather, I get to worship. I, in fact, I must worship. In fact, I, I appreciate what my brother Clint read uh, this just a moment ago from 1 Corinthians when Paul said, I must preach the gospel. I must do it. There's a compulsion within us that the Spirit brings out in us. They worship by the Spirit of God. And of course, this is much more than singing. All of life is worship. Uh, it is all worship. It is more than singing. But of course, it's not less than singing. And so I wonder, when we did sing, were you compelled by the Spirit to do so? Was your worship, was your praise to God this morning by the Spirit of God? That's a sign of what God has done in our lives. And I trust we grow more in that experience as we follow him. Or even now, is he helping you consider God's word? Or in a moment, will he help you as we remember the death of Christ through the Lord's Supper? He is there in your life to motivate you and compel you and to, to help you to, to worship, to bring that about. We worship by the Spirit of God. And he goes on and says, secondly, that we boast or we glory in Christ Jesus. That's how my translation puts it. But many have translated, we boast in Christ Jesus or we exult in Christ Jesus. Jesus is our joy. And so he's our confidence. He's our boast. Not our accomplishments, not our religion, religious observations, not our good moral works. We boast in Jesus. We are not like the Pharisee who stands back and says, I'm glad I'm not like other men. 
I thank you that I'm not like those people. That is not our boast. Our boast is in Christ. He is our joy and our hope. He is our treasure and we are to find delight in him. We're to boast in him, exult in him. At least we should. And yet so often our language betrays our hearts when we say things like, well, I know I need to read the Bible. I know I ought to be praying more. I know I need to bring my kids to church service. I ought to be doing these things. Please understand, Christian, that Christianity is not dutiful obedience. Christianity is not, okay, I follow Christ, which means I get stop doing the things I love and I have to start doing the things I hate. That's what Christianity is. It is not that at all. It is a delight. It is a boasting. It is a rejoicing in Christ. It is finding our joy in Him. It is not duty. If I were to come home tomorrow and open the door and there greet my wife with a hug and a kiss and she would stand back at me and say, well, what is that about? And I say, well, I happen to be reading page 216 of the marriage manual and it says when husbands come home, they are to kiss their wives. How would she feel? Or how would I feel when she's beating me with the marriage manual? <laughs> she wouldn't feel honored. She wouldn't feel esteemed. When we say to God, okay, I know I have to do this, so I'm just going to do it. There's no glory given to Him. There's no honor. Christ says, I want you to boast in me. I don't want you to be ashamed of me. I want to be your treasure, your delight, your hope. I have gone to the cross of Calvary and taken your sin upon me and conquered the grave. Not so that you may simply obey me, but that you may love me. That you might follow me. The Spirit does this work in our lives. The transformed man finds their delight in Christ. Do you boast in Jesus? Do you boast in Him? Do you have joy in Jesus? Not do you go to church. Not do you read your Bible. Do not, not do you give your offering. That means nothing. If you don't love Christ. You must love Jesus. I hope that He's the reason you live. I hope he's the one you love to talk about. And if you boast in Christ, therefore you will, as Paul says, lastly in verse 3, put no confidence in the flesh. No confidence there at all. He says, if your boast is in Jesus, your confidence will not be in yourself. In fact, the Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 that salvation is not the result of works so that no one can, you know what? Boast. Purposely put in. Why is salvation not by works? Well, at least one reason so that you cannot boast in yourself. You did not accomplish this. Christ did. And therefore, Christianity is unlike all the world's religions. That Christians do not trust in our own self-efforts. We put no confidence there. And so I ask you as we prepare ourselves for the Lord's Supper, where do you place your confidence? Where do you, do you have your confidence to stand before God? Is it that you are not like other men? that you are better than so-and-so, that you have done good things? Will you present to God a spiritual resume, your achievements, your, your respectability, your religion? So the Bible teaches something terribly different, that there is nothing you are or will ever do that will win God's acceptance. In fact, the very act of trying is offensive to him as it minimizes the work that Jesus has done. Why then has Christ died if you need to work your way into God's favor? He died to secure that for you. And turning from your work and accepting Christ's work, actually, rather than humiliation, brings great joy and delight. 
I hope your confidence is in Christ. And I hope, by the way, that your confidence being in Christ will not simply impact your eternity, though it will. I hope it will impact your tomorrow. I wonder if you're truly confident in Christ, that you boasted in Christ and not yourself, if that would change how you respond to failure on Tuesday afternoon. Or if that would change how you react to some personal insult Thursday morning or how you relate to your spouse or your children. Would that change if your confidence was in Christ? Would it change your tendency to put others down in order to make yourself feel better if your confidence was in Christ? Let it all rest there. Place all your confidence in Christ. It will impact your eternity. It will impact your tomorrow if you trust in His work. In fact, let's consider His work for us as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Let's be reminded of why we can turn from our own works and trust in Christ as we remember the work that He has done. And it is sufficient. It is enough. It is finished. And if you would place your faith in Christ, bow your knee to Jesus, the crucified and raised from the dead, you will be saved. The Bible says in Romans 10 and verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Not if you work, do these things, place your confidence. It is faith, salvation by grace through faith alone. It is faith in the work of Jesus on the cross. And so um, we come now to a time in order to remember that and to celebrate that. And we invite all who are here this morning, who are believers in Jesus Christ, to take of this meal. This is a meal for Christians. If you're visiting here this morning, as I mentioned a moment ago, we're just very delighted to have you. What we do ask as this meal is passed, these trays are passed, you would just simply pass it on to the person next to you if you are not a follower of Christ. We don't do this to be rude to you. We do this because God has told us to do this. That this is a meal that Christians might celebrate as they rejoice in the work of Jesus on their behalf through His death and resurrection. In fact, we're given some instructions that we are prone to follow here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 when it says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And so I want to give you, as is our custom, an opportunity to silently examine yourself, to pray to the Lord in your heart, to see if there's any sin that you might turn over to Him, that you might not approach this meal haphazardly, that you might not approach it casually as we remember Christ's death for us, that you might confess sin to Him and repent of that even now before you take of these elements. But please do not misunderstand me. This is in no way saying that you can only take this meal if you're walking perfectly with God, for this is a meal that celebrates grace for sinners. This is a meal for sinners. So invite sinners who have trusted in Christ to partake of it. Why don't we pray silently for a moment?